everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sarah. Thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. If you follow me on social media, then you already know that I had to delay this episode due to being sick last week. Um, I have recorded the podcast while I've been sick, but I had very severe flu-like symptoms last week. Um... That really just made it impossible for me to even get out of bed, let alone record a podcast. So I appreciate everybody being patient and understanding. I was hoping to knock out two episodes this week to catch up and stay on course, but um, those flu-like symptoms kind of faded into a severe head cold, (laughs) which I'm still dealing with. You can probably hear it in my voice, um, but I have my tea and I have my box of tissues. I will try to edit out all the nose blowing <laughs> in this episode so you don't have to listen to that. I didn't want to delay this episode another week. Um, so we are going to push through this and I'm going to try not to sound too terrible. But I just, this week, I my kids are out of school until the 6th at the earliest. Uh, I live in Ohio. So our governor, um, if you guys are on social media and following this coronavirus, you know that Ohio has been uh, one of the first states to really kind of sh- start shutting down everything. So I am working from home remotely. And so I've been adjusting to not only that, but having my kids here with me 20, well, tw- yeah, 24 seven, cause we're not going anywhere. And also kind of, uh, trying to be their teacher. I'm not a teacher. I am not cut out for teaching children. Um, I, I'm trying to help my oldest daughter with fractions and that has been a disaster. <laughs> I don't like fractions. So all I'll say is when schools are back in session, teachers deserve a raise. They deserve a big raise and all the benefits. Um, So if you are a teacher listening, thank you for what you do every day. I can't do it. I don't know how you do it. Um, But seriously, uh, and I was serious about that. But otherwise, I've had a lot of people reaching out to me about the coronavirus and we don't. I don't want to talk about it too long. Um, You're hearing it all day, every day, especially if you're on social media. It's everywhere. Um, But I've had people still asking me about Captain Trips. And I just am going to put this out here before we start chapter 45. Captain Trips had a communicability rate of 99.4. If you caught Captain Trips, if you were infected with the super flu, you did not recover. And more than anything, the most important thing is Captain Trips is fictional. It's not real. Um, coronavirus is real. It's scary. Uh, the numbers are very terrifying. Um, but thankfully, we have a way to kind of flatten the curve. As you've heard, as you as you've heard on the news, and I, all I can say is uh, practice. Uh, you know, hi, basic hygiene. Wash your hands. Stay inside. Just follow what the CDC is telling you to do, and hopefully, we can get this virus out of here and get back to normal, um, with very minimal damage. So I really do hope that if you're listening to this episode, that you're being safe and that you're healthy. 
and that your friends and family are also safe and healthy as well. And I hope that despite the subject matter of the stand, um, I do hope that this episode will give you um, a little reprieve from the real world for a little while. Um, If we can enter a fictional world that takes us away from the real one, um, I'm all for that. And that's one reason why I love to read. And that's one reason why I love this book. So let's get into chapter 45. I really do hope that the wait for this episode is worth it because today we get to finally meet Mother Abigail. To recap last week, Larry meets three new survivors on his journey to the ocean. A 37-year-old teacher named Nadine Cross and a young boy she's been taking care of named Joe. Nadine and Joe accompany Larry on his journey, and after finding Harold's message on the barn in a gun quit, they head for Stovington, Vermont. Along the way, they meet Lucy Swan, a 23-year-old widow who has lost her husband and daughter to Captain Tripps. The four of them get to Vermont, where they find another message from Harold that everyone inside is dead, and his group is headed for Nebraska. At this revelation, Nadine faints. In chapter 45, we are introduced to Abigail Fremantle. It's July 20th, and she is enjoying the summer day out on her porch. She's lamenting at who is no longer around to enjoy the summer. The young folks, the old folks, and most of those in between. She thinks God had brought down a harsh judgment on the human race. Some might argue with such a harsh judgment, but Mother Abigail was not among their number. He had done it once with water, and sometime further along, he would do it with fire. Her place was not to judge God, although she wished he hadn't seen fit to set the cup before her lips that he had. But when it came to the matters of judgment, she was satisfied with the answer God had given Moses from the burning bush when Moses had seen fit to question. Who are you? Moses asked, and God comes back from that bush, just as pert as you like. I am who I am. In other words, Moses, stop beating around here this bush and get your old ass in gear. We do get some backstory on Abigail throughout the entire chapter, um, interspersed with some actions from Mother Abigail in the present. And to make it easier, I will be touching on her past first before we fast forward to the present. So Abigail was born in 1882, making her 108 now in 1990. Her family came to Nebraska as freed slaves. Abigail's great-granddaughter, Molly, believed the money that Abby's father had used to buy the land, money from Sam Fremantle of Lewis, South Carolina, as wages to Abby's father and his brothers for the eight years they stayed on after the Civil War had ended, had been conscious money. Abigail held her tongue at this, Conscious money, well, is there any money cleaner than that? So they settled in Hemingford home, and Abby had been born there. Her dad, John, bought land a smidge at a time, as not to alarm the racists around them. He had been the first black man in Polk County to try crop rotation, the first man to try chemical fertilization, and in the March of and in March of nineteen oh two, Gary Seitz had come to tell John that he had been voted into the Grange. He was the first black man in the whole state of Nebraska to belong to the Grange. And if you didn't know, a Grange is a farmer's association. That's um, It was organized in 1867, and it sponsors social activities, community service, and political lobbying. 
This was an unprecedented thing. Obviously, this would come at a price in the form of racial slurs and crude jokes from those against the idea. But John Fremantle knew that this was something that offered his family a chance at survival. So he accepted, and the vote went his way with a comfortable margin. And yes, there were jokes and slurs, but John ignored these, and he would quote the Bible. His favorite quote, not spoken in humility, but in grim expectation was, the meek shall inherit the earth. Soon, he brought his neighbors around, excluding the hardcore racists, and in 1903, they had dinner with Gary Seitz and his family right in their parlor. Abigail also played her guitar at the Grange Hall. Her mom had not wanted this to happen, afraid that people would laugh at her or throw rotten tomatoes at her white dress. Her mother was afraid Abigail wouldn't understand the reaction to her singing and playing in the Grange, and John would feel terrible with his daughter asking why they were doing that to her and why he let them. But John decided it was up to Abigail and David. David Trotz, who was Abigail's husband, whom she had married in the same year. Abigail had been 20, and David always thought that whatever Abigail thought was right, well, he thought it had to be right too. And Abigail decided to go ahead and play her guitar at Grange Hall. Thankfully, there was no laughter, no tomatoes being thrown, Abigail played her guitar, and she sang, and she actually won over the audience with her hymns to the point where people were dancing and tapping their knees along with the music. They even called for an encore. She finished by singing the Star-Spangled Banner to a standing ovation, and that was the proudest day of her life. She had five children by David, all boys but for one girl a girl named Maybell, who choked to death on a piece of apple in the backyard while Abby was hanging clothes. David died in 1913 of influenza, and in 1916 she married Henry Hardesty from Wheeler County. Henry was a widower with seven children of his own, all but two who were grown and moved away. Henry was seven years older than Abigail, and he gave her two boys before he was killed when his tractor turned turtle on him. A year later, Abigail married Nate Brooks. Nate had been Henry's hired man and had been a good husband. Not as sweet as David and not as tenacious as Henry, but he was a good man who did what she told him. Her six boys gave Abigail 32 grandchildren. Her 32 grandchildren gave her 91 great-grandchildren. At the time of the superflu, she had three great-great-great-grandchildren. She would have had more, if not for the pills girls took these days to keep the babies away. The last of her brothers, Luke, had died in 1949 at the age of 80-something. The last of her children, Samuel, died in 1974 at the age of 54. She had outlived all of her children, and that was not the way it was supposed to be, but it seemed like the Lord has special plans for her. In 1982, when she turned 100, she got her picture in the Omaha paper. When asked by a reporter to what she attributed her great age, Abigail replied, God, which seemed to be a disappointing answer. Her great-grandchildren came around to visit often. Kathy and David gave her a television so she could watch herself on the news, and she got a letter from Ronald Reagan congratulating her on her advanced age as well as the fact that Abigail had voted Republican for as long as she had a vote to cast. She got a paper certifying her as the oldest living person in Nebraska, and the town had repealed her taxes because of her age. In 
That helped because if they hadn't, she would have lost what little land she had left. Most of it was gone now, sold off bit by bit by her brothers, and most of it from her own sons. Four acres was all that was left. Abigail got a paper sent to her from the American Geriatric Society, saying that she was the sixth oldest being in the United States and the third oldest woman. She got Molly's husband, Jim, to frame the letter and hang it beside the letter from Reagan. And that had been the last time that Abigail saw Molly and Jim. They had wanted to get her a flushing toilet since she went outside six or seven times a day to squat. And Jim had said that she was like a dog that couldn't pass a fire plug without least lifting one leg to salute it. But Abigail refused. They were worried about her age going outside when it was only 10 degrees above zero to do her business. Abigail hadn't cared. She simply believed that when the Lord wanted her, he would take her. Other great-grandchildren, Christopher and Susie, had wanted to get her city water, but Abigail turned that down too. They were worried that her dug well was shallow and would dry up if another drought came. But Abigail still refused. But she felt that God spoke to her. Not from a burning bush or out of a pillar of fire, but in a still small voice that said, Abby, you are going to need your hand pump. You enjoy your electricity all you want, Abby, but you keep those oil lamps of yours full and keep the wicks trimmed. You keep the cold pantry just the way your mother kept it before you. And mind you, don't let any of the young folks talk you into anything you know to be against my will, Abby. They are your kin, but I am your father. She's seen quite a bit during her time on Earth, but nothing compared to what's happened over the past month. She's never seen such a thing, and now she hates that she'll be a part of it. She's old, and she wants to rest and enjoy the cycle of the seasons between now and whenever God got tired of watching her daily routine and called her home. She knows her time in Hemingford Home is coming to an end. Her final season of work lay ahead in the West, near the Rocky Mountains. And she's afraid of the man with no face, the man who stalks her dreams. She never saw him. She didn't have to see him. He was a shadow passing through the corn at noon, a cold pocket of air, a gore crew peering down at you from the phone lines. His voice called to her in all the sounds that had ever frightened her. Spoken soft, it was the tick of a death watch beetle under the stairs telling that someone loved would soon pass over. Spoken loud, it was the afternoon thunder rolling amid the clouds that came out of the west like boiling Armageddon. And sometimes there was no sound at all but the lonely rustle of the night wind and the corn. But she would know he was there, and that was the worst of all, because then the man with no face seemed only a little less than God himself. At those times, it seemed that she was within touching distance of the dark angel, that had flown silently over Egypt, killing the firstborn of every house where the doorpost wasn't daubed with blood. That frightened her most of all. She became a child again in her fear, and she knew that while the others knew of him and were frightened by him, only she had been given a clear vision of his terrible power. On the morning of July 20th, Abigail is going through her morning routine, thinking that most of her family, if not all of it, was probably gone now, Molly included. In the last year, Molly and Jim were the only ones who had come to see her anymore. The rest seemed to forget that she was alive, which Abigail understood. She had lived past her time. 
She was like a dinosaur, which had no business still wearing its flesh over its bones, a thing whose proper place was in a museum or a graveyard. She takes a moment to look out over her land and the sea of corn surrounding it. The corn would be fine this year, but no one would be around to harvest it. It was sad to think the big red harvesting machines would stay in their barns this September. Sad to think there would be no husking bees and barn dances, and that for the first time in 108 years, she would not be in Hemingford home to see the time of the change as summer gave way to autumn. She would love the summer all the more because it would be her last. She felt that clearly, and she would not be laid to rest here, but farther west in a strange country. It was bitter. That night, Abigail dreams of the time she played guitar at the Grange where people danced and clapped and gave her a standing ovation while calling for encores. Except in this dream, it all goes terribly wrong, because in this dream she sees him for the first time, standing in the back corner, arms folded across his chest. He was wearing jeans and a denim jacket with buttons on the pockets, dusty black boots with run-down heels, boots that looked like they had walked many a dark and dusty mile. His forehead was white as gaslight, his cheeks red with jolly blood, his eyes blazing blue diamond chips, sparkling with infernal good cheer, as if the imp of Satan had taken over the job of Kris Kringle. A hot and fleering grin had pulled his lips back from his teeth into something close to a snarl. The teeth were white and sharp and neat, like the teeth of a weasel. He raised his hands out from his body both of them curled into fists as tight and hard as knots on an apple tree. His grin remained jolly and utterly hideous. Drops of blood began to fall from his fists. In her dream, Abigail forgot to play as the fear overwhelmed her. She called out to God, but God had turned his face away. And that's where things went bad. Racial slurs were screamed at her. People surged forward towards the stage. Her husband, who was watching, got punched in the face. Her mother was covered with a curtain and beaten. Her guitar was taken and smashed to strips and strings on the stage. Abigail looked for the dark man, but he had gone. His engine had been set in motion and was running sweet and hot. Someone stabbed her father in the face with a broken bottle. It was chaos and violence, and it leaves Abigail screaming, the force of it seemingly breaking the room apart. And then she's in the corn, listening to the summer night wind, smelling the ripening corn. But she was still afraid because the dark man was there with her, trailing just behind or maybe just right ahead. Then he spoke and she could see his shadow, tall and hunched and grotesque. His voice was soft, the voice of doom. It said, I have your blood in my fists, old mother. If you pray to God, pray he takes you before you ever hear my feet coming up your steps. It was not you who brought music from the air, not you who brought water from the rock, and your blood is in my fists. And then she was awake, drenched in sweat. Abigail calls out to God, but he doesn't answer. Abigail gets out of bed and starts the fire for coffee. She knows she has a lot to do in the next few days because her company was coming. She decides to go down to Addie Richardson's farm to get some chickens from her hen house. She would use her cane today because it was four miles to the Richardson farm and four miles back. She walks slow because the sun was already powerful at 8.30 in the morning. Abigail has plans to arrive by noon, 
sleep through the hottest part of the day, and in the late afternoon she would kill the chickens and come home. She worries about the dark man, but he is still far away. Her company is much closer. It's a painful walk for such an old woman. Pain sinks into her hips and knees. She thinks about her past, but soon she sees the glint coming off of the hen house ahead, maybe a mile away. And when she arrives, she can hear the chickens cackling inside the hen house. She also sees a body, Bill Richardson, who was Addie's brother-in-law. He had been well picked over by foraging animals. And being exhausted, Abigail heads to the house for sleep. But like Larry had under the tree in New Hampshire, she sleeps through the night straight through to the next morning. So Abigail gets busy. She kills three of the healthier-looking chickens still alive in the hen house. And that afternoon, she dreams of the company getting closer to her when she takes another nap. They're just south of York in an old pickup truck. Six of them, including a boy who is deaf and mute, but an all-powerful boy all the same. He was one of the ones she would have to talk to. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Abigail gets busy defeathering the chickens, and then she gets a bit to eat. At 20 to 7, she gathers up the tow sack carrying the dead chickens and heads home. She doesn't think she'll get back to her house until midnight and asks God to walk with her. By the time she gets to where the tar stopped and the road went to dirt, it was nightfall. She sat for a bit to rest and eat a peanut butter sandwich she had made back at the Richardson's. She aches again, and her strength is just about gone with only two and a half miles left to walk. But she feels strangely exhilarated. How long since she had been out after dark, under the canopy of the stars? They were bright tonight, and she looked for falling stars in the sky to make a wish on. A warm night like this, the stars, the summer moon just peeking his red lover's face over the horizon, it made her remember her girlhood again, with all its strange fits and starts, its heats, its gorgeous vulnerability as it stood on the edge of mystery. Oh, she had been a girl. There were those who would not believe it, just as they were unable to believe that the giant sequoia had ever been a green sprout. But she had been a girl, and in those times, the childhood fears of the night had faded a little, and the adult fears that came in the night when everything is silent and you can hear the voice of your eternal soul, those fears were yet down the road. In that brief time between, the night had been a fra fragrant puzzle. A time when looking up at the star-strewn sky and listening to the breeze that brought such intox intoxicating smells, you felt close to the heartbeat of the universe, to love and life. It seemed that you would be forever young. In the midst of her reflection, she hears a voice. Your blood is in my fists. And something tugs sharply at her toe sack of chickens. Abigail is startled to see a large brown weasel. Its eyes rolled at her, picking up red glints of the moonlight. It's joined by another, and then another. Abigail can see more lying the other side of the road. They smell the chickens. But how could so many of them have snuck up on her? She had been bitten by a weasel once when reaching under the porch of her house for a red rubber ball that had rolled beneath it. The weasel had clamped down on her arm and refused to let go. It had been painful and terrifying. Her brothers had been in the yard too, her father on the porch. They had all come running when they heard Abigail, who was only 12 years old at the time, screaming. 
It was her father who acted first, using a chunk of stove wood to hit the weasel from her arm. When it fell, her brother jumped on it, effectively killing it. John Fremantle had lamented that he had never seen a weasel do that before. There was fear that the weasel had rabies, in which Abigail would have likely died a rather horrible death. But the weasel had not been rabid, and Abigail's wound had healed clean. All the same, that left Abigail with an intense fear of weasels, and she was still scared of them to this day. And now there were hundreds of them surrounding her, darting towards the tow sack. She realizes that he sent them, the dark man. He knew her fear. Abigail thinks she needs to give them the chickens, and her journey and pain would be for nothing. If she doesn't give it to them, they'll rip her apart. But then she prays to God, and she fights back, screaming at the weasels to get out, to get away, that the chickens are for her company. The weasels draw back, and their eyes fill with ease, but then they're gone, like drifting smoke, just like that. A miracle, she thought. An exultion and praise for the Lord filled her. Then, suddenly, she was cold. Somewhere far to the west, beyond the Rockies that were not even visible on the horizon, she felt an eye, some glittering eye, suddenly open wide and turn towards her, searching. As clearly as if the words had been spoken aloud, she heard him. Who's there? Is it you, old woman? Abigail prays for God to help her, to help all of them, and she finishes her walk home. Company shows up two days later. After getting home from the Richardson's barn, Abigail fell asleep and was laid up for a while. She dreamed she was in some high cold pass in the middle of the Rockies, west of the Continental Divide. Highway 6 stretched and twisted between high rock walls that shaded this gap all day long, except from about 11.45 in the morning until about 12.50 in the afternoon. It was not daylight in her dream, but full, moonless dark. Somewhere wolves were howling. And suddenly an eye had opened in all that darkness, rolling horribly from one side to the other while the wind moved lonesomely through the pines and the blue mountain spruce. It was him, and he was looking for her. Abigail doesn't want to go west, closer to the dark man, but she knew sooner or later the man would feel strong enough to come after her and those who would be with her. If not this year, then the next. Dogs were gone, but wolves remained high in the mountain, ready to serve the imp of Satan. And it was not just the wolves who would serve him. Abigail got ready for her company. She fried chicken, baked some pies, and when her guests arrive, a few fellows could go out into the corn and pick some ears for the meal. While she waits, she sits on her porch with her guitar to sing her favorite hymns. When the truck finally arrives, Abigail can see four crammed into the cab and three more in the truck bed standing and looking over the cab at her. She could see a thinnish blonde man, a girl with red hair, and in the middle, yes, that was him, a boy who was just finishing up learning about being a man. Dark hair, narrow face, high forehead. He saw her sitting on the porch and began to wave frantically. A moment later, the blonde man copied him. The red-headed girl just looked. Mother Abigail raised her own hand and waved back. In the cab is a man of about 50, a woman around the same age, a little girl in a red jumper, and Ralph Brentner is driving. He greets Mother Abigail with enthusiasm. 
The young man with the eye patch and the dark hair, Nick, jumped over the side of the truck even before it had stopped. He caught his balance and then walked slowly toward her. His face was solemn, but his eye was alight with joy. He stopped at the porch steps and then looked around wonderingly at the yard, the house, the old tree with its tire swing, most of all at her. Abigail greets them and welcomes them. She says they can't stay long, but they'll break bread and have some fellowship before moving on. The little girl named Gina asks Abigail if she's the oldest lady in the world. Abigail responds that maybe she is. We learn over the course of the meal that the older woman's name is Olivia Walker and the man is Dick Ellis. He is a vet who helped set Gina's leg after she broke it falling out of a barn. Nick, Tom, and Ralph had happened upon Dick halfway across Kansas. The next day, they had heard Gina's weak cries coming from the barn. Dick hadn't had a lot of hope for her. She had lost a lot of weight and her overall condition was poor. But he had set her leg and she bounced back with a speed that had surprised them all. The redhead was June Brinkmeyer. They work out sleeping arrangements, and as some of them head off to sleep, Nick stays at the table. Abigail studies him. You would think, she mused, that if a man couldn't talk, he would get lost in a room full of people, that he would just sink from view. But something about Nick kept that from happening. He sat perfectly still, following the conversation as it traveled around the room, his face reacting to whatever was being said. That face was open and intelligent, but careworn for one so young. Several times, as the talk went on, she saw people look at him, as if Nick could confirm what he or she was saying. They were very much aware of him, too. And several times she had seen him looking out the window, into the dark, his expression troubled. Soon, it's just Nick, Ralph, and Mother Abigail at the table in the kitchen. Abigail recognizes a sense of knowledge and completion, as if this was simple fate. There's something about Nick that makes her feel as though she's known him before, or had always meant to know him. As if at one end of her life there had been her father, John Fremantle, tall and black and proud, and then this man at the other end, young, white, and mute, with that one brilliant, expressive eye looking at her from that careworn face. Abigail tells them that they need to talk. Ralph and Nick are the head ones, and they have things to sort out. Ralph isn't so sure about that. He thinks Nick is the one in charge. Nick agrees that it was his idea to come this way, but he's not so sure he's in charge. They met June and Olivia, 90 miles south of Hemingford home. The women were headed north, like them, and like Dick Ellis. Nick says, or writes, that they felt others, like they were being watched, but people were too scared to be seen. Dick had heard motorcycles in the distance. Abigail asks why they came to Hemingford home. Nick tells her he dreamed of her. Dick Ellis had once, too, and Gina was calling her Grammy lady before they arrived. Gina had described the house and the swing. Ralph admits that he dreamt of her once or twice, but he mostly dreamed of the other fella. When Abigail asks who he's talking about, Nick writes it down and circles it. Circled, it gave her a cold chill just looking at it. She thought of weasels squirming across the road on their bellies, yanking at her toe sack with their needle-sharp killer's teeth. She thought of a single red eye opening, disclosing itself in the darkness, looking, searching, 
Now, not just for an old woman, but a whole party of men and women and one little girl. The two circled words were dark man. Abigail explains that she was told in a dream by God that they were to go west. She didn't want to listen at first. She was an old woman, and all she wants to do is die on this little piece of land. She started having dreams two years before the plague. And she's always dreamed, and sometimes her dreams have come true. Prophecy is the gift of God. Everybody has a smidge of it. Her grandmother used to call it the shining lamp of God. Sometimes just the shine. In her dreams, she sees herself going west, at first with a few people, then more, a few more, and she sees the Rocky Mountains. There will be a whole caravan, 200 or more. There will be signs, not signs from God, but regular road signs saying Boulder, Colorado. The dreams scare her, and she never told anyone she was having them. She tried to pretend that she was a foolish old woman running from God the way Jonah did. But the big fish swallowed them up just the same. And she always felt like someone would come to her, someone special, and that's how she'd know the time had come. Abigail looks at Nick and tells him that she knew it when she saw him, that it was him. God had put his finger on Nick's heart, but he has more fingers than one, and there were others out there still coming. He's got his finger on them too. But she also dreams of him, the dark man, and now he's looking for them. Nick isn't so sure about the God part, but he does ask Abigail if she's dreamed of the others. Dick, June, Olivia, or Gina? No, Abigail has only dreamed of a man who doesn't talk much, a woman with child, and a man about Nick's age who comes with a guitar of his own. And, of course, Nick. Nick asks if she knows who the dark man is. I know what he's about, but not who he is. He's the purest evil left in the world. The rest of the bad is little evil. Shoplifters and sex fiends and the people who like to use their fists. But he'll call them. He started already. He's getting them together a lot faster than we are. Before he's ready to make his move, I guess he'll have a lot more. Not just the evil ones that are like him, but the weak ones. The lonely ones and the ones that have left God out of their hearts. Nick is hoping that maybe the dark man is not real. Maybe he's just the scared, bad part of all of them. They're dreaming of things that they're afraid of. Abigail understood what he's saying, but Nick dreamed of her, and isn't she real? She's dreamed of Nick, and he's real. The dark man is not Satan, but he and Satan know of each other, and have kept their counsels together of old. He is west of the Rockies now. Sooner or later, he'll come east. Maybe not this year, but when he's ready. Nick is disturbed, <laughs> and Abigail warns that there are bitter days ahead. Death and terror, betrayal and tears, and not all of them will be alive to see how it ends. Understandably, Ralph is not liking any of this. <laughs> Things are hard enough without the dark man in the mix. Abigail says this is God's way, and he doesn't explain himself to the likes of her. Nick suggests that they go east instead of west, but Abigail does not agree. Nick, all things serve the Lord. Don't you think this black man serves him too? He does, no matter how mysterious his purpose may be. The black man will follow you no matter where you run, because he serves the purpose of God, and God wants you to treat with him. It don't do no good to run from the will of the Lord, God of hosts. A man or woman who tries that only ends up 
in the belly of the beast. Nick writes down his response. He doesn't believe in God. Abigail can only chuckle and she pats Nick's hand. And she says, bless you, Nick, but that don't matter. He believes in you. They stay at Abigail's the next day. Tom spends it running up and down the rows of corn. Gina sits contently in the dirt beneath the tire swing, playing with a set of old paper dolls that Abigail found in a trunk. Dick Ellis is craving pork chops and asks if anyone in the area had had pigs. So Dick, Abigail, and Ralph head to the stoner's farm, who had always had pigs. Abigail slaughters the pigs herself, but leaves Dick and Ralph to do the rest of the work. And they're a bit green at the prospect of what they have to do, but they do it. And at dinner, they all have pork chops, although Dick and Ralph do not eat very well. It's so different when you have to see how it's made, right? <laughs> Around nine that night, Ralph asks if she's really 108 years old. So she shows him the letter from Ronald Reagan. Olivia is amazed. Oh, the things Abigail must have seen. But Abigail says it's nothing compared to what she has seen over the past month. Nick comes into the room and writes that they should start for Boulder tomorrow. Abigail agrees, and she asks Nick what made up his mind. He points at her rather angrily. Abigail understands, and she says her faith is in the Lord. Nick wishes that his was. The next morning, Ralph, Dick, and Tom head for Columbus in Ralph's truck to trade her in for something to carry a larger company. Nick asks them to find one with a CB radio and asks them to be back as soon as they can. Ralph tells Nick he's in an awful hurry to stick his head in the lion's mouth, and Nick asks if he has anywhere else to be. Ralph responds, that's true. It's no good just wandering around. It makes you feel kind of worthless. A person don't hardly feel right unless he's looking forward. You ever notice that? Nick does. And when they leave, Nick gets to work on a sign to put in Abigail's yard. We have gone to Boulder, Colorado. We are taking secondary roads to avoid traffic jams. Citizens Band Channel 14. And that's why he wanted a truck with a CB radio, in case other survivors can reach out to them. Nick is feeling very conflicted. They had turned him into a leader, and he couldn't understand why. He thinks about Abigail and what she said. God had put his finger on Nick's heart, but Nick won't accept that. He won't accept God either. Let the old woman have her God. God was as necessary to old women as enemas and tea bags. He would concentrate on one thing at a time, getting them to Boulder and then seeing what came next. Nick didn't want to believe that the dark man was real, but in his heart he did. In his heart, he believed everything Abigail said, and it scared him. He did not want to be their leader. When Abigail wakes from her nap on the porch, she talks to Nick about her land, about her brothers. She is very emotional. She's leaving her home, and it's harder than she thought it would be. She's harbored hate of the Lord in her heart. Even the joy of serving him is still a bitter joy. He's told her there is work for her ahead, and so she has to live and live until her flesh is bitter on her bones, and she sees all of her children die. She has to see her land taken from her piece by piece, and her reward for all of this is to go away with strangers from all the things that she loves best, and she'll die in a strange land with the work not yet finished. She's crying now, but Nick, she asks him to help her along. 
She only wants to do what's right. Nick holds her hands tightly. When Nick and Ralph are back, they have a new Dodge van, and Ralph is driving a red wrecker truck with a pushboard on front. Abigail notices the way Ralph shows June the new equipment, and she approves because you know June's got some good birth and hips. <laughs> so they have a CB radio, and they eat, and around 1 o'clock, they have everything stowed away and packed up. Abigail's rocker and guitar included. Abigail sat up front in the van as they drove westbound on Route 30. She did not cry. Her cane was planted between her legs. Crying was done. She was set in the center of the Lord's will, and his will would be done. The Lord's will would be done, but she thought of that red eye opening in the heart of the night, and she was afraid. Okay, so now we've been introduced to Mother Abigail someone we've only met through our character's dreams before now. We get some interesting backstory on Abigail, and I like how King placed the memories over the course of Abigail's day preparing for her company. He stuck to the essentials of her background, her family, the hardships, uh, her husbands and children, even her great-grandchildren. Abigail has been through a lot. Three husbands, the death of a young child, her only daughter, Maybelle, and then outliving her brothers, her children, actually her entire family now, thanks to the plague. He spends quite a bit of time on how aged her body is, the pain that she feels when she walks, how thin she is. It takes her hours to walk four miles, and when she reaches her destination, she's so exhausted that she sleeps right through the day to the next. She has to wear her dentures because that's the only way Nick um, can read her lips, but She's toothless without them. She still has pretty decent eyesight, so that's something. Abigail seems very delicate and even fragile physically, the way King describes her, but her mind is tough and sharp, and that exudes a lot of strength. Abigail has a lot of faith in God, but she still harbors resentments towards him because, you know what, she's human. She has her flaws, which I think um, that balances a lot of the trust that she puts into uh, her faith. She is not a saint, uh, and King doesn't write her as one, and it could have been so easy to write her as, you know, when you see good versus evil, it's always kind of like the halo angel versus the the devil with the horns and the, uh, the forked tail, but that's not what this is. Abigail is good, but she is not perfect. Even in her old age, we see she's a strong woman. She's held her own for decades, and it's easy to understand why her fi family might think she's stubborn for not wanting a flushing toilet or city water. But Abigail knew that God had plans for her and told her to deny those things, and she stuck to that rather than caving in to make her family happy. So she basically, I mean, she probably grew up living this way, so it wasn't a hardship for her. But she had to deny the things that would have made her living easier, especially in her old age, because of what God told her to do. It certainly can't be easy to outlive three husbands and her own children. And her land is all that she has left. And now she knows she has to leave it. It's like God is taking away the last thing that means anything to her. And he's sending her off to die out west to face the dark man. And of course she feels bitterness, but she will still serve her Lord. 
We do learn that she has a smidge of prophecy, a smidge of the shine, which obviously King references in a few other novels, most notably The Shining. And Abigail has had prophetic dreams about the plague for two years, but she's been too scared to speak of them. And now it's happening. Seeing Nick, she knows that he is the one to finally, finally confirm to her that everything she's dreamed about is real. It's true. It's happening. They need to go west to Boulder, Colorado. Running in the opposite direction will not stop the dark man from following them. And Abigail knows that she's going to die before the work is done. She discovers that she has not dreamed of everyone, not the way that they've dreamed of her, but she has dreamed of Nick, of a man who doesn't talk much, which is obviously Stu, uh, a woman a, a woman with child, Fran, and a man with his own guitar, Larry. God has put his fingers on their hearts, just as he, just as he has done with Nick. Uh, but what is their purpose? Nick is supposedly a leader now, so will Stu, Fran, and Larry be leaders as well? Nick, Ralph, and Tom are the first group of people to reach Abigail, um, as she knew they would be, because she dreamed of them. Along their journey, they picked up Dick Ellis, Olivia Walker, June Brinkmeyer, and young Gina. And no doubt as they travel west, they're going to find even more people. Stu's party left Vermont on July 8th, headed for Nebraska. And I think by the time... Uh, Abigail and the gang leave, is it July 23rd, 22nd? So probably somewhere around there. So when Nick arrives, Stu is probably not too far behind them. But Abigail and the others will be gone before uh, Harold and that party arrive. So thankfully, Nick followed Harold's line of thinking and left a sign in Abigail's yard announcing their journey to, to Boulder so that the others will follow. We do get some insight from Nick's point of view in this chapter and how he's conflicted about what he thinks they should do and what Abigail is sure they should do. And Nick does not believe in God, but he's willing to let Abigail have her faith. He's just not as sure about it as she is. Uh, He doesn't understand how he became a leader and he doesn't really want the role, but what else can he do about it? Everyone seems to look at him for guidance uh, and Nick is scared too. He doesn't want the dark man to be real. Uh, who would? But in his heart, he knows that the dark man is as real as Abigail is. And he's willing to put his trust in Abigail, not in God, but in Abigail. And he's willing to go with what she believes is is best for everybody. And that includes going west, closer to the dark man. Abigail warns Nick and Ralph that there will be better days ahead. Death, betrayal, and terror. That's not super comforting, but there's nothing that they can do about it. Uh, They all survived the super flu, but that doesn't mean that they'll survive what's coming. Not all of them will live to see how it ends. This chapter felt very similar in how King introduced us to Randall Flagg in chapter 23. Uh, Where Flagg is presently, while giving us brief flashbacks to his past and how he became what he is and what his plans are for the future. Flag knows where he's meant to go, and now he's gathering followers like Lloyd Henry. And Abigail knows this already. The Dark Man has already started gathering his people, and he will continue to do so until he's ready to find Abigail and her people. But now Abigail has Nick and the others, and the numbers will only grow as they get to Boulder. 
flag is looking for Abigail, represented by that large eye in the sky, which is very reminiscent again of the Eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings. And now we have these representations of good and evil, Mother Abigail and Randall Flagg. Both are headed west, separated only by the Rocky Mountains, and they're gathering their followers, and they're no doubt on a path to confrontation. Abigail knows that she'll die before the end. The only question we have now is when and how. So this chapter is very effective in finally giving us the protagonist that connects everybody together. I think uh, King did a great job at making her a fully realized person. It also moves the story forward because these characters were all dreaming of this old woman sitting on the porch of a small house surrounded by corn. And now they're moving on from that to Boulder, Colorado. So what is coming next? While Abigail and Nick's party head for Boulder, we are going to check in with Stu and his party next week in chapter 46 and see where they are on their journey to Nebraska. And that is it for this week's episode of The Circle Opens. If you're enjoying this podcast, feel free to leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts or any platform in which you listen to this uh, podcast. Every rating that you guys leave me is truly appreciated. Um, Thank you so much to everybody who's already done it. Um, It does help get the podcast noticed. So it's so appreciated. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Um, And because I forgot to do it at the beginning of the episode. um, Thank you to everybody who reached out to me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook um, and wished me well to get better after I had to delay last week's episode. Um, It's really appreciated, you guys. I say that a lot, but I do appreciate you guys so much. If you ever have a drinking game for this, this podcast, just put anytime Sarah says she appreciates you just drink the whole bottle. So (laughs) no, don't do that. I'm not condoning that. (laughs) Clearly, I need some more cold medicine and to relax for a bit. So thank you guys, everybody stay healthy. um, Stay well, stay inside um, for a while. And let's get this coronavirus, this kick its ass and get it out of here. So um, barring any catastrophes, M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week.